No, no, never. You should never wash my feet. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. One of you is going to betray me. What are you, who, who is it? It's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. What are you talking about? You can't go with me now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. You will disown me three times. Peter, what are you, what are you talking about? And you know the way to where I am going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. Let me pray as we begin our journey through this last part of the upper room. Father, as we have looked with intensity at the going on of this last few hours that you shared with your disciples, uh, there's a sense, Lord, in which we're invited into this conversation. And particularly as we see these last words that Jesus said in this sacred place, of the upper room. In these last moments, Lord, how he turns his heart from the disciples to the church that will be and will come. That includes us. And so, God, we, we just want to pray that we would receive from you that revelation of what it is that Jesus was intending for us, the church, in that time when he spoke 2,000 years ago. So we pray for your blessing to be upon your word and that our hearts and minds will be open to receive what it is that you're saying to us in a personal way today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this uh, setting that we've got up here is, uh, in, in a way, portrays the upper room, uh, not just simply because it's got an advertising hoarding describing it for the disciples who didn't know where to go, but this is um, a symbol here of how the, the meal was eaten around a table, uh, unlike Leonardo da Vinci's description of the Last Supper where all the people sat on one side of the table, strangely enough. But uh, here we had a room with a table, maybe just a floor, and they sat on that floor and they ate this meal together. In these last few words that Jesus has, we move into what I would suggest is probably the most intimate conversation that we find in Scripture. Intimate because it's close to the heart of the disciples, but as we move from this conversation Jesus has with the disciples to a prayer that he now engages with God, we see this, this level of intimacy that Jesus and the Father share. Not only intimacy, but a shared history that takes them back to the creation of the world and a desire between them to be able to engage us, the church, in that intimacy as well. This isn't a relationship which stands alone. This is a relationship between God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, which embraces us. And that in itself is a powerful, powerful demonstration of God's love for us. And so I feel a little bit like a fly on a wall, really, in this passage. I found it quite challenging because this intimacy uh, that we're talking about here is so pure and so um, embracing that it feel easy, feels easy to, to, to misrepresent it. So we'll do our best today. What we've found is that Jesus has spoken in profound ways about the coming of the Holy Spirit and how it is that Jesus had to go for the Holy Spirit to come. So he said, whilst I go, and that seems sad, the Holy Spirit is coming and that will be better for you. Now the disciples don't fully understand this, but what they do understand is the next set of passages where Jesus talks about persecution. He says, they persecute, persecuted me and they will persecute you. 
And then he talks again about the, uh, the, the leaving and how he's going to leave them and he's going to be tried through trial and ultimately through crucifixion. So we find that this, this conversation is now ending, the one that he's having with his disciples, and he's starting to move towards this prayer with God. And I want us to pick up on this transition. Jesus said, Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming, in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now this is a, has a real sense of immediacy about it, doesn't it? Because here he's talking about how the disciples will abandon him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and immediately he says, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone. The Father is with me. Okay, so Jesus knows that human companionship is vital, but like all of us, we're never alone. We have the Father to take us through difficult times, even when we might feel abandoned, in this case, like Jesus was, by his friends. And then he goes on to say, this trouble will continue for you. In this world, you will have trouble. You will know trouble. But, I, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, these words have encouraged Christians for generations, for centuries. Because of difficult times that they have endured, people who preceded us, who have had a tough time because they're Christians, or just a tough time economically or politically or socially, financially or with health. Uh, these tough times are when we lean in on Jesus and we look at his ministry and we know that he too, like the Apostle Paul went on to demonstrate, lived a tough and rugged existence, completely dependent upon the provision and the love of God. So for Christians, we are told we will know trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That is a powerful, powerful promise, isn't it? I have overcome the world. And it doesn't mean that we overcome the world ourselves in our own strength, but we yoke ourselves to the person of Christ and we ask for him to guide us through the times of trouble, and he will show us a way even in the dimmest darkness. Yeah? Many of you have experienced that. Many of you have been strengthened by that, as I know I have over the years. So after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Okay? Now this is, this is quite hard to explain, really, in one sense. Because the word glorify is not something that we use so much these days. But glorification is where you are given an opportunity to be at your best. Okay, So what we're talking about here is Jesus is highlighting the fact there is a time coming, and he's talking now about the cross. The ultimate demonstration of God's love for us is found in the person of Jesus dying on the cross. So because of that, this is called the glorification, yeah, even, even theologically. We talk about the glorification of uh, the Son of God being in the cross, in the crucifixion. And it's, a, it's an oxymoron, isn't it? It's a sort of an upside-down world thing where you think, how can somebody dying, somebody being tortured, put to death, be the, the highlight or the peak of their, of their uh, life journey? Well, in this case, because Christ died on the cross for our sins, this becomes the centerpiece of our faith because there that transaction takes place where he dies for our sins, for my sin, and gives us his perfect life in return. So that our life is measured in his perfection, not 
in our sinfulness. So this is how God is going to glorify his son, Jesus. Now, when we talk about glorification, we, we, we live in a world where we get a little bit of reflected glory here and there, don't we? As New Zealanders, we, we glory in the fact that it was Edmund Hillary with Sherpa Tenzing who were the ones who got to the top of the world first when they conquered Mount Everest in 1953. And we say, he's our man, don't we? Yeah? And sports, of course, when the All Blacks win, they say, they are our boys. Hey, bit of reflected glory there. Um, what about the netball team? They didn't do so well. <laughs> we don't say our girls didn't do so well. We, we start to turn that. Um, this last week's quite funny. Um, my, my brother, he's got a couple of teenage kids, and uh, he, was, he was sort of received a bit of reflected glory this week in a funny way. Um, his son Peter's in year 10. And they did an IQ test in their class beginning of the year. And uh, the teacher called him out one day and had him sit beside his desk. And he said, uh, Peter, he said, I just want to tell you that you did really well in that IQ test. You actually, beca- you actually were first in the class. And Peter's like, oh, okay. He said, um, who got second? And the teacher said, me. <laughs> so, so, so my brother's getting this reflected glory for the fact that his son, you know, beat the teacher in the IQ test. I, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but sounds pretty good. So we glory in each other when we're at our best. Isn't that true? And so it is in the life of the church when we see people like Pauline and the team there from Ruel winning awards for being the best orphanage in the Philippines. You know, I know that David and Linda, who founded this ministry, would glory in that, but not in a way where they take it for upon themselves, they were glory at the goodness of God. They took a seed of vision 20 years ago when a young boy, Ruel, needed to have a cleft palate done, and they got sponsorship for that. And that began a whole ministry. And they would glory in the goodness of God because of what little seed of vision that was taken there has expanded into this amazing ministry that is now recognized internationally. And we can all receive some glory by virtue of our partnership with them as a as a church, and we, we take great pride in their ability to do things well and for that to be recognized and for lives to be changed and for the gospel to be seen and heard in practical ways and uh, in, in, in word, the proclamation of the gospel. These are the things that God glory, glories in when we do what we do well, when we're called to this sort of service. And so we are surrounded by people who are witnesses to the gospel in this way. So here we are, Jesus is saying, uh, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And then there's a change in this conversation. The change is when Jesus now addresses the father. So in a way, you're seeing him get up from the table, not probably physically, but in a way he's getting up from this table and you can sort of envisage him now just looking toward heaven and he's starting this conversation with his father a conversation that's been an ongoing part of his ministry in the three years that he's been here ministering on earth. But now we see it uh, up close. And this is how it goes. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I should have pushed this twice. We'll go down the second line. continues there. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. 
Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's very easy in today's society to have a Hollywood view of eternal life. Eternal life is that place where you go to. Yeah? It's that place that looks sort of shite. It's going to say bright and shiny. I said shite and briny. Um, shite and briny. Bright. It's beautiful. <laughs> and, and it's that picture of the, of the other. Okay? It's the picture of the other that which we can't imagine, and we're trying to imagine it through a Hollywood setting. But Hollywood gets it so wrong, because what we're told here by Jesus is, uh, verse 3, it says there, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so eternal life begins the moment you invite Christ into your life. This is the beginning of a relationship. You have been purchased and that the Holy Spirit coming in and bringing that revelation to you is a deposit, we're told, of what is to come. This revelation when the light comes on, this understanding of whom Christ is, the Son of God, who's come into our world to not only die for our sins, but to give us a whole new life. A whole new life. And it begins the moment that you accept Christ. So eternity is, is closer than you think because the Son of the living God lives within you, and He is eternal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And He said He wants to make His home with us. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. See, as we get older, we, we sort of um, we get used to living without a body. We do, don't we? You know, I, I'm getting a few giggles from the older folks here. They're going, yeah, you're right. I'm getting used to living without a body because you're not going to have a body when you get to heaven. Your spirit, spirit is, is, is immutable. It's unchangeable. It is eternal. And your spirit is connecting with the spirit of God. And that, that transition that allows you to pass out of this body into eternal life is, is amazing. I, I just had a couple of weeks down the Fjordland with, uh, with some friends uh, hunting. And I took my son-in-law along, who's, you know, 30 years my junior. And, uh, yeah, I could tell it after a couple of weeks, that I needed his body. <laughs> and he certainly didn't want mine. <laughs> um, but we're getting older and we learn to live without our bodies and, and, and eternal life has begun and that's the beauty of it. I've got to say, when I, when I first became a Christian, when I first got involved with the church, the thing that astounded me the most was the older folks. Because regardless of their body deteriorating, there was life. There was life. Spiritually, we're alive. And I have to say, it was one of the most attractive things to me, even as a 21-year-old, was to see older people who just had vision for the future, who had this sense in which I might pass away, but what I am part of is not going to pass away. Okay? I'm just going to continue on this relationship with Jesus. It's an amazing thing. It was a complete contradiction to the people who I'd been seeing in my youth growing up and getting older. Complete contradiction. I just love that. Eternal life starts when you bring Christ into your life. Jesus then goes on to say to the Father, remember this is a prayer, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you 
before the world began. Now, this is the sort of stuff you go, whoa. Hey? Wow. That's a real buzz, isn't it? You know, it's, it's this sort of captures these words like John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and became flesh and dwelt amongst us. You go, whoa. And so we get this, this picture of Jesus saying, hey, look, God, I was with you in the beginning before all this was created. In fact, we co-created the world we live in. And I've got this intimacy, this relationship with you that is eternal. It has been since the beginning of time. And now he's saying that um, he's going to be restored to that place of glory, the glory he had before all of this story began, before all of us were created. And, and so therefore, we get a picture, this glimpse of what it's like to have this sort of relationship with God, a God who has been since the beginning of time. And for us, worship is a natural byproduct of that. For once we get hold of a revelation of whom God is, uh, we can't help but glorify Him in and through our lives. And the amazing thing about this is that it's the us that Jesus is really compelled about here. Because he's saying, Father, just like you and I are one, so those who will believe upon us are, are one with us. And so we are drawn into this story, this divine partnership, that means that whatever we bring, whatever we have counts. Whatever we say, whatever we do, is all part of the divine story. And Jesus said, whenever you give a cup of cold water in my name, you do this for me. Yeah? So the smallest of things that you do in the name of Jesus counts because we're grafted into this eternal life and into this divine being. We, the bride of Christ, we, the bride of Christ, being welcomed into this family. And these images are so powerful in their purity and they're so powerful in their level of celebration. And I think at times we just fail to see that. We just fail to realize the majesty and the glory of the church. And, and the reason why God doesn't like sin is because of what it does to us. You see, whenever we sin, we turn our eyes from God. Our conscience is seared, and we sort of like, oh, I'm sorry, oh, you know, and we turn away. And over time, when we, we're living a life that is sinful, or we're doing things that are hurting others, and we know that it's not a biblical lifestyle, we ultimately reject God because we turn our back because of that level of indifference we've created and we feel ashamed. Remember in the Garden of Eden? God comes looking for Adam and Eve after they've sinned. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? In other words, I can't find you. Why? Because you're hiding from me. Sin causes us to hide. Repentance and forgiveness causes us to embrace and to once again be captured into this divine relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? It's an incredible way. Because we think it's a transactional deal. We think that if we sin, we need to be forgiven so we can get back on level one. Well, this isn't a transaction. This is a relationship. If we sin, we repent, we seek forgiveness, and we feel comfortable about embracing God and this quality and level of relationship that he desires for us and with us. 
And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me. He's talking to us now. Through their message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. These are, these are big words, aren't they? Powerful stuff. But Jesus is now talking to us. What's he saying here? I'm talking to those who will believe in the future. That's the church. That's who we are. All around the world today, beginning in the morning on a Sunday, largely Protestant churches, Catholic churches, all around the world are gathering to worship. Okay? And so we were in the heart and mind of Jesus when he spoke this prayer, that we would be one. Now, the thing about the church, of course, is that it's only one generation ever away from dying. If the message isn't taken on and given to the next generation, the church stops there and then. But the, that sounds negative, but the positive is the other side of it, isn't it? If you were somehow to be able to get a, a, a spiritual um, genealogical tree, you would find that you became a Christian because this person shared the faith with you. And that person became a Christian because somebody else shared the faith with you. And that person became a Christian because they went to Billy Graham, for example. And that person, Billy Graham, got saved because his parents led him to Christ. And his mother was influential in his life because of an aunt. And, it, and you've got this. And you know where we'd end up? Back here. We'd end up back here at the upper room. And we would hear Jesus praying for the church. I pray for them who will believe upon your message. Isn't that cool? I wonder if in heaven we will get to have that little... Yeah? I don't have how many little... It must be hundreds, if not thousands, of little connections there, eh? It just blows your mind, doesn't it? And this is what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for the church. He's praying for that growth. He's praying for those little bits of communication that occur. Or when you do give a glass of water to somebody in the name of Jesus, and that becomes a trigger point. For somebody who's observed it or somebody who's received it, that becomes the seed that gets watered. And then the light comes on, the Holy Spirit comes in, and people are born again, and so it goes on. This is what Jesus is describing here, this organic growth, this beautiful thing, a powerful way in which the gospel and all of us are part of it can be translated and transmitted to a new generation. I just love it. But then he goes on to say, of course, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. It's interesting here that he says, I have given them the glory we think, well, God's given us you know, something but like a gold medal to glorify in. But it's, it's not that sort of glory. It's a glory that allows us to do something. It's a glory that allows us to be as one. Be as one. To have the same mind, to have the same desires, to have the same level of celebration in the person of Christ. We're not all the same, I'm not talking about Gloria Vale here. We all wear the same clothes and say the same thing. But that we would be one. And, and the, the thing about it is that we think as the church that the best thing that we can do is more programs. The best thing we can do is be the brightest people on the street. The best thing we can do is have the best music or whatever it might be. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. 
My glory is to allow you to be one. <laughs> Put that bottle in there, Patty. Stick it in. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, to be one. And, and that's the thing that surprises us the most, is we think, oh yeah, but surely God, I could do a whole bunch more stuff than just love my Christian brothers and sisters. He's saying, no, 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 no. You love them and everything else will come. The greatest witness you'll have is the bride of Christ, the church. Christian unity is a mutual love for Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't have to, it doesn't mean that we have to um, think the same and all those sorts of things. But it's really important that we acknowledge and are impressed by the body of Christ in all of its forms, that we celebrate it. And for me, you know, as a Baptist national leader, I just mentioned earlier on that I was engaging with the Catholics and the Anglicans. You know, we rolled back a few centuries and we're throwing rocks through each other's windows. Some of you would remember that. Some of you may have... No, I won't ask that. But here we are working together because there's unity in the body of Christ for the goals of glorifying God. And, and Corinthians says this too. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given that once, the one spirit to drink. And the truth is we're all thirsty, aren't we? We're all thirsty for the knowledge of God, all thirsty to get to know him better in ways that can satisfy this God-sized hole within us. But within this body, we're all different. And I love that because there are so many things that I can't do and others can do so well. There's so many things I wouldn't want to do and others love doing. Michaela and I have got this great relationship. She does the garden, I mow the lawns. Okay? At a twist, she'll get me to dig a hole or pull out a tree here and there. But largely, it's this synergistic relationship. I struggle, though, when she throws her weeds on my lawn and expects me to mow them up. Who's got a wife who does that? <laughs> yeah, man. I've now caused some, some lunchtime conversations, haven't I? Yeah. But um, I, I, I've just, like I say, I've just been to Fjordland. We take um, an inflatable boat and we motor down the rivers and set up camp and hunt on that. And so I've got this little outboard motor, a three-horsepower motor, goes on the back of my rubber boat. can only go downhill. It can't come up again. It's so small. It's just for steerage. And I take with me a screwdriver, uh, a spanner, a plug spanner, a can of CRC, a spare prop. And, a, and a, a shear pin, which looks really impressive, but I don't know how to use them, really. Uh, I think the best thing you do with CRC is just spray the motor with CRC and pray. And uh, you know, I'm not very mechanically minded. I could take a spark plug out, maybe. Um, last night in our home, um, Michaela and I sat down and I watched her put together a flat pack set of drawers. I was really encouraging. Three hours later, when she was still wrestling at it, I said, I think you've got that bit, and that was about all I got to say. <laughs> but now that she's done the first one, I'm sure she'll do the second one twice as quick. Now, I did say that in the first service, just because she's not here. It's not because she's away weeping because of my comments, but what I'm trying to say is we're all di gifted differently, okay? My argument was we didn't need another set of side tables, but... Um, yeah. I and them and you and me, um, so that you may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me 
and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And uh, it's, it's incumbent upon all of us to be able to walk and work towards it. There's so much competition in the body of Christ. It worries me. You know, we've got better programs, we've got better music, we've got better preachers, we've got better churches. You know, it's a, it's a strange scenario because it's very, very worldly in that, in that setting to see this sort of, sorry, in that setting to see this. And, uh, and, and it's something the church needs to repent over continuously. Yeah? Probably particularly pastors, to be quite honest. Um, but unity is a powerful thing that God wants. And celebrating what God is doing in other churches, other denominations, is a, is a, is a joy that we should experience. Because we're all one at the end of the day. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. See, Jesus wants us to understand the glory that he has. He's talking here about the cross, his glorification in the cross, but he's talking about the big picture of who he is so that we can glory in who he is. By doing so, we get a revelation that sheds the love of Christ abroad in our hearts. And that changes us. That transforms us. It gives us the ability to be able to look at Christ and say, you are my glory. You are my reward. Not only my reward and my destination, but you are my journey. You're my pathway. You'll never forsake me. You'll never leave me. Because eternal life has already started within you. And finally, he says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. If there's one thing, if there's one thing that I would ask for the whole world to know, it's these words that the world would know that God sent His Son, Jesus. If the world knew that, the world would be so different, wouldn't it? They could have that confidence that God has visited and has now remained amongst us by His Spirit. But the one who created them, the one who gave us purpose and life and meaning and significance, loves us eternally. If the world would know that, it's just hard to imagine what sort of place this would be in. And maybe you don't know Christ, but what I've spoken about today reminds you that there's something missing. I just want to put it to you today, I'll put a challenge to you and say, look, for you eternal life can start. Start today by inviting this eternal God into your life. The person of Jesus who has died on a cross for your sin and mine. 2,000 years ago, we looked at it. He desired a relationship with us. And the choice is always yours. God never pushes himself upon you. But the opportunity is there today for you to accept him. And if you want to know how or why this is happening, you'll feel something within your spirit right now. 
just saying, yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure about what all this means, but your spirit is talking to you. That's how it does it. just sort of becomes alive within you saying, this is what I'm here for. I'm here to connect with the eternal God who has died for my sin. So will you accept Christ today by listening to what your heart says? If you want to do that, then I invite you to come and see us after the service today. When we finish, we're going to finish with a final song now. But for now, I'd just like us to stand and we will pray together. Lord, we thank you that as we are observers to this conversation between the Father and Jesus, we've been given an insight into the world that was before time. Where we, the creation, get to see a little bit of our genesis, our origins. Where we can see how it is that out of love, out of glory, that this relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit exists. And out of that relationship, we were spoken into being. That gives us a touch, an idea, an insight into what you think of us because it was out of relationship, out of love, out of a desire to, to know and to be known that you created us. And God, it's so easy in our independence, in our spirit of rebellion to cut our own track, go our own way. But we come before you, Lord, and we, we repent of that. We say no to that. We're not going to do it our way anymore. We'll do it your way. And so for those, Lord, who are teetering on the edge of making a decision for you, I, I just want to pray, Lord, that you give them the courage and the strength to do so. For us who have lost the wonder, lost that sense of glory and majesty of whom we serve, Lord, we pray that you would pour that love and pour that revelation into our souls once again. That we might restore that first love that you speak of when everything was so immediate, so fresh, so real, so bright. Renewing us by your spirit, Lord, that first love. Father, we just want to glorify in you and we pray that we do glorify you. We pray that we, the church, can be the people who point towards you, both individually and collectively. That we can be the people who carry your glory in and through this world, even into our homes and our workplaces, and that we can create that place of connection for you and others to join with those around us whom we share our lives with, that, that we might bring to this world that aroma of life. Let that be, we pray. Let that be, we pray, in Jesus' name.